Closing arguments are set to begin today in Donald Trump's civil business fraud trial in New York. It's Thursday, January 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie becomes the latest Republican candidate to drop out of the presidential race just days before the Iowa caucuses. Also, the U.N.'s highest court opens hearings into allegations that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. And this hour, a look inside Boston's only black-owned brick-and-mortar metaphysical shop and how its owners are using crystals and tarot cards to help bring people together. We welcome people here from all backgrounds, and people from all backgrounds come in here. I think crystals are, you know, the Earth's gifts to everyone. Celtics win, increasing clouds in 40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Lawyers for New York State and for former President Donald Trump are expected to make closing arguments today. NPR's Andrea Bernstein reports this is for the $370 million civil case against him for fraudulent business practices. New York's Attorney General says Trump lied over and over about the value of his properties. That made it possible for him to get bank loans at way below what he otherwise would have, saving hundreds of millions of dollars. The AG says Trump also used the illicit profits, among other purposes, to finance his 2016 presidential campaign, the one he said he was self-financing. Trump's lawyers say no one was harmed. The bank made money, and the AG hasn't proven her case. After one day of arguments, the case goes to the judge. A verdict is expected this month. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie has dropped out of the Republican presidential campaign. Just before withdrawing, Christie was caught on a hot mic criticizing rival Nikki Haley. There had been speculation he might endorse her. NPR's Marie Andrusevich reports front-runner Donald Trump quickly echoed Christie. Before an event in New Hampshire, Christie was heard commenting on Haley's chances, saying, quote, she's going to get smoked and she doesn't have what it takes. First on social media, then at a Fox News town hall in Iowa, Trump pounced on Christie's remarks. He happened to say that she doesn't have what it takes. She'll be creamed in the, in the election. And I mean, I know her very well, and I happen to believe that Chris Christie's right. During that same candid moment, Christie said Governor Ron DeSantis called him and was, quote, petrified. In a post-debate interview on CNN, DeSantis responded, confirming the call but denying the fear. Maria Andrusevich, NPR News, Washington. The U.N.'s top court, the International Court of Justice, opened a case today in The Hague. The case accuses Israel of committing genocide against Palestinians in its war against Hamas in Gaza. South Africa brought the case. The court's president, Joan Donahue, says South Africa is alleging Israel is trying to destroy a substantial part of the Palestinian national, racial, and ethnic group. South Africa asserts that the relevant acts are attributable to Israel, which has failed to prevent genocide and is committing genocide, and which has also violated and continues to violate other fundamental obligations under the Genocide Convention. Israel vehemently denies the allegation and says it is conducting the war according to international law. Tomorrow, Israel will present its response to the genocide claim before the International Court of Justice. The U.N. Security Council is demanding that rebels in Yemen, backed by Iran, stop attacking international shipping. The attacks are mainly happening in the Red Sea. Commercial shippers are diverting their ships away from the region at greater costs to consumers. 
This is NPR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Massachusetts's top House Democrat says it's becoming harder to support rising shelter costs. House Speaker Ron Mariano says he's concerned about funding shelters amid a drop in state tax revenue. Officials say Governor Maura Healey plans to tap into the state's reserve fund to pay for the growing shelter need. Mariano says that could put the state in a tough spot financially. Massachusetts Congresswoman Catherine Clark is part of a group of House Democrats trying to force a vote to federally ban high-capacity gun magazines. Clark says gun violence is a public health crisis. This legislation will get the tools of wars out of our communities, off of our streets. Banning the high-capacity magazines that have been used to wreak so much destruction in our country and steal away so many loved ones. She notes that gun violence is the leading cause of death for children. Changes are coming to Boston's exam schools' admissions policies. Last night, the city's school committee approved changes to how it weighs socioeconomic factors during the admissions process. Boston Superintendent Mary Skipper tells the Boston Globe the change will preserve diversity at the schools. A New Hampshire man has struck a plea deal for his role in a bomb threat extortion case involving Harvard University. Todd Bookman reports. Last April, Harvard University received a series of threatening phone calls. A computer-generated voice claimed bombs would explode on campus if the school didn't turn over an unspecified amount in Bitcoin. Surveillance footage showed a man placing a bag in the Science Center Plaza. A bomb squad would find wires and fireworks inside, but no explosives. 55-year-old William Giordani was arrested for placing the bag. He told authorities he was hired to do so through a Craigslist ad and that he didn't know the details of the plot. He's entered a guilty plea and is expected to get probation at his sentencing in April. The Associated Press reports no one else has been charged in the incident. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Todd Bookman. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. The Celtics are celebrating an overtime win at home. They beat the Minnesota Timberwolves 127-120. The Seas now head to Milwaukee to take on the Bucks tonight at 7.30. The Bruins are also on the road. They face off against the Golden Knights in Las Vegas at 10 p.m. A flood watch remains in effect through Saturday night following all the rain we got yesterday. Increasing clouds throughout the day today with highs in the low 40s. Tonight, skies clear and temperatures drop to around freezing. Tomorrow, the sun returns and we'll have highs in the mid-40s. There's another round of rain and windstorms expected late Friday night into Saturday morning. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Congress has a few days left to approve a government spending plan. Leaders have agreed on broad outlines of a bipartisan deal. The House and Senate have a lot of work to approve the details. We heard yesterday from a Republican lawmaker in the House who opposes the agreement. Too much spending, he says. Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia joins us this morning. Senator, welcome back. 
Steve, good to be with you. Thanks. Is it reasonable to expect that you will get your business done and pass everything in time the next few days? Um, I think it is. Um, remember, this deal is just affirming a deal that the House, Senate, and President Biden made last May. We made a deal about spending levels, and uh, the deal that was announced over the holiday with the House under the leadership of a new speaker, obviously, is that we would stick to that deal. So this is not like a new thing that everybody has to scramble to figure out how to do it. This is the flight path we've been on since last May, and I believe we can get it done, part of the budget done by January 19, and then the other portion done by February 2. There's an ambiguity here I'm trying to figure out from the outside. Um, Republicans have demanded, among other things, that something be added here, that there be a crackdown on immigration at the border or illegal immigration at the border in some manner that satisfies them. I know that talks with the White House are ongoing about immigration. So is this connected to passing the spending plan? If so, how and where do things stand? Steve, in the Senate, it's not connected to the spending plan, but it is connected to the the other big item of business we're working on right now, which is this supplemental package of security assistance to Ukraine, oh, right, right. Israel, humanitarian assistance to Gaza. So we are we are working on that very thing. And it's unclear whether on the House they would want this as part of the spending plan or part of the supplemental. But in the Senate, these are two live discussions happening at the same time, the budget discussion and then the supplemental discussion and border security is in the middle of that one. Okay, so this is actually helpful to me as a layman. You're telling me that the broader budget outline that was approved last spring and reapproved over the holidays and is on its way to passage may or may not, does not necessarily include uh, some hot-button things like aid to Ukraine. I, th I think it's likely that it will not include those, but what you'll likely see in the Senate is we're going to start moving today on the, the first chunk of the budget, and then we're likely to take up very quickly this supplemental package, which includes the, the tough, you know, uh, Ukraine, Israel, Gaza humanitarian aid, and the border security provisions. Negotiations are ongoing, but my sense is they're very close to a point of resolution. Do you expect, uh, at least on the Senate side, uh, a clean spending plan to be passed? In other words, no no controversial writers on policy, so to speak. It's interesting that what is a controversial writer is in the eye of the beholder. But I believe, <laughs> I believe the, the plan right now is, yes, it's going to be a clean spending bill. Um, and, you know, our, our general attitude about the House is they, they have to do it their way. But the bigger bipartisan margin we can put behind any bill in the Senate, the more likely when it goes over to the House, it carries some momentum that, uh, you know, maximizes the chances that they will act favorably. There is talk of expanding a child tax credit permanently as part of all this, which would be a big deal for a lot of families. Is that going to happen? That, that one is still very much up in the air, and it's kind of a paired discussion. Child tax credit on the one hand, and also uh, an R&D credit for businesses that do research and development, which is a, a, a huge you know, motivator for economic growth, really desired by the Republicans and by uh, American corporate community. And so Senator Wyden and the Finance Committee members are working to see if they can do a deal that would pair child tax credit with the research and development credit. I talked to Ron yesterday, and he says, you know, it's it's complicated, and once people see those two, then they want to add everything else in the tax code that they yeah. want. So he's working hard on it, but that would be a wonderful win if we could get both of those done. Okay, one other thing in about 30 seconds. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin has been criticized for failing to tell the White House or anybody else about his hospitalization and his condition in recent days. What do you make of all that? 
um, it can't happen again. It was it was a very serious breach by a by a guy who clearly great public servant understands chain of command. You have to keep your superiors and you have to keep your subordinates informed. He's sixth in line to the presidency. We're involved in military actions right now where he's playing a critical role. He should have kept folks informed. Democratic Senator Tim Kaine of Virginia, thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Steve. We're following a court proceeding today at The Hague in the Netherlands. That city is home to the International Court of Justice, part of the United Nations. And that's where South Africa brought a case against Israel, alleging genocide against Palestinians. The filing asked the court to order a stop to the war in Gaza as a provisional measure while it decides the case. NPR's Rob Schmitz is covering the case, joins us now from Berlin. Let's start with what South Africa is alleging in this case. What evidence does it present for Israel committing genocide? Yeah, South Africa filed an 84-page application to the court, and it writes that Israel has engaged in and failed to prevent or to punish acts and measures which are genocidal constituting flagrant violations of Israel's obligations under numerous articles of the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. And that would include, according to South Africa, killing Palestinians in Gaza, including a large proportion of women and children, which it estimates to account for around 70 percent of the more than 23,000 fatalities, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Israel's military response followed the Hamas attack on October 7th, which killed 1,200, according to Israel. South Africa also accuses Israel of causing the forced evacuation and displacement of around 85 percent of Palestinians in Gaza, as well as causing the wide-scale destruction of homes, villages, and refugee camps in Gaza, preventing a significant proportion of the Palestinian people from returning to their homes. When it comes to a charge of genocide, Rob, what's the burden of proof? Yeah, from from legal experts I'm speaking to, it's going to be difficult to prove. And that's because the legal definition of genocide depends on proving intent. I spoke with Gleda Hernandez, a professor of international law at Leuven University in Belgium, who is also the president of the European Society of International Law. Here's what he said. Genocide is not a crime that just exists by virtue of an act. There is specific intent that must be proven. You must prove the desire to exterminate a group by reason of one of the characteristics, race, religion, nationality. Israel's strongest defense is likely to be to suggest that the evidence does not establish intention on the part of Israel or its organs to commit genocide. And Hernandez says that even if some of Israel's acts against Gaza might be prohibited under international laws that deal with armed conflict, they may not constitute genocide because Israel will likely say they're taken in self-defense and international law does allow a state to defend itself. What's Israel saying about this? Yesterday in a press conference with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, Israel's President Isaac Herzog said this. There's nothing more atrocious and preposterous than this claim. Actually, our enemies, the Hamas, in their charter, call for the destruction and annihilation of the state of Israel, the only nation state of the Jewish people. And Herzog also pointed out that the Convention Against Genocide was enacted by the international community after the Holocaust, modern history's defining act of genocide, which was committed against the Jewish people. All right. So what happens today and what happens after? So the court will hear South Africa's case today and then Israel's case tomorrow. A ruling may not come for years. What may happen within weeks or months, though, is that the court could issue a provisional ruling, similar to an emergency injunction. So, for example, the court might direct Israel to refrain from its attacks on Gaza, anything that would aggravate this dispute. But another legal scholar I spoke to told me that enforcing this is really difficult, and Israel could very well ignore it. States typically only comply with the court's provisional rulings in around half of all cases. That's NPR's Rob Schmitz joining us from Berlin. Rob, thanks. Thank you.
A lot of cities have changed their streets and changed their kinds of development to reduce parking for cars, leaving more room for people. In Arizona, new development takes that idea further, claiming to be America's first neighborhood built to be car-free. NPR's Adam Beard has the details. John Robert Rodriguez loves his new home. It's been absolutely fantastic. In October, the special ed teacher moved to cul-de-sac Tempe. The development, which is being built by the real estate company cul-de-sac, is car-free. I was more nervous before I moved here because looking at the transit maps, I was like, this is going to be such a hassle. Now once I'm here, it's convenient because you don't have to be in the car. You don't have to be driving. And when you're not driving, like on my way to work, I'm already working. Raised in Florida, Rodriguez says he feels like the U.S. pushes people to be dependent on cars. I traveled around the world a lot and where I've gone, you kind of realize how much easier life is when you can get around, when it is an option to not have to get in a car. Reducing reliance on cars is exactly why cul-de-sac CEO Ryan Johnson co-founded the company. In the U.S., we've been building the wrong type of housing for almost 100 years now. We've not been building what people want and the kind of housing that makes people happy. And we're bringing those kind of neighborhoods back. A promo video on the cul-de-sac website shows the kind of neighborhood Johnson's talking about, one where residents have many everyday necessities right on site. There's a small grocery store, a gym, even a restaurant and bike shop. It's all spread around a mixture of wide courtyards and narrow alleys between buildings that's a far cry from the typical urban sprawl found in the Phoenix area. But what if you want to leave? All of our residents get an unlimited light rail pass. They use Lyft, they also use electric bikes and electric scooters instead of a private car that sits parked for almost the entire day. That light rail line passes Arizona State University, where Megan Ellens teaches urban planning. The idea behind walkability is that you should be able to live your life within a certain distance on a day-to-day basis without needing to use a car. And she's giving cul-de-sac an A+. It's a really nice space. I think that there's a clear identity, and that's part of the walkability of it, is that you feel like you're in a place. It doesn't feel just like all the other streets or neighborhoods around you. Around 100 people live at cul-de-sac right now. Another 60 units are opening early this year. In total, developers are planning for 1,000 residents once construction is complete. For John Robert Rodriguez, his rent of 1400 bucks a month for his one-bedroom apartment is a bargain. Being around like-minded neighbours, an added bonus. Adam Bierne, NPR News. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your Thursday with 90.9 WBUR coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition. After trading barbs in a debate last night, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis are making their final appeals to voters in Iowa ahead of the caucuses there on Monday. It's 719. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU Center for Professional Education Certificates in Real Estate Studies. Stay current and competitive by earning a certificate in commercial real estate, facilities management, and real estate finance. Classes begin the week of January 22nd. Sign up at bu.edu slash professional. Since I've set up the Legacy Gift, I feel like a real member of WBUR's family in a big way. And that makes me feel really good. Build a strong future for WBUR. Learn how at wbur.org slash legacy. 
The people who entertain us, the world in all its wonder, the ideas that spark creativity, joy and inspiration every day on All Things Considered from NPR News. From 4 to 6.30 on WBUR. Increasingly cloudy today. We'll have highs in the low 40s. Mostly overcast tonight. Temperatures will fall to the low 30s. Clearing skies overnight make way for a sunny day tomorrow with highs in the mid 40s. A rain and windstorm moves in late Friday night and lasts into Saturday morning. It's 40 degrees in Boston. If you're working on your fitness in the new year, join us at City Space on Monday, January 29th for a boxing night. It'll feature strength training and shadow boxing paired with hip-hop and house music. Tickets are at wbur.org slash events. Support for NPR comes from this station... And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from BetterHelp committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at betterhelp.com public. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Happy Dry January to those who celebrate. Dry January, if you didn't know, is the idea that you cut out alcohol for a month after the New Year's Eve celebrations. For those who find it hard, NPR's Netta Ulabi brings us a music critic to explore songs about not drinking. At first, Sasha Fair-Jones was skeptical about this idea. Music, it sort of makes me drunk, and I don't want to think about sobriety when I listen to music. This is dumb. I don't like these songs. Fair-Jones is a former critic for The New Yorker magazine. Make no mistake, this is serious to him. I'm coming up on five years sober, so this is all extremely personal to me. But even as an alcoholic in recovery, he says, his first instinct was to reject the idea of good songs about not drinking. Don't preach to me. Don't tell me what to do. Ew, gross. I don't want that in my music. What he wanted instead for many years was music like Elliot Smith's. That was my guy. I don't think anyone has ever written about drinking better than Elliot. Come on. This song, Clementine, is about a drunk passed out on a bar stool. They're waking you up to close the bar. That's the first line of the song. Like, stop it, Elliot. You're too good. How much information can you pack into one line? I thought it was saying to me, like, keep going, keep drinking, man. Like, you know who's at the bar when they close it? Elliot Smith. Elliot Smith, in this way, is a little like Amy Winehouse, a musician who makes it easy to glamorize being drunk. I like being drunk because it's like this song. Why would I not want to feel like this song? There are no better songs, so it must be okay to be an alcoholic. It should go without saying that Elliot Smith and Amy Winehouse are now dead, making it harder to romanticize songs about not going to rehab or waking up in a bar. That's not good. 
it's like one of the stories in the back of the big book, like, you know, I was the guy that they always had to wake up to close the bar. When it comes to good songs about not drinking, one of the first that occurs to Sasha Fair Jones is this one by Minor Threat, the Washington, D.C. punk band big in the 1980s and 90s. The reason we talk about straight-edge punks is because of this song. It's nearly impossible to make out the words, but the idea is that the singer has better things to do than get messed up. That's its own kind of rebellion. That's a version of sobriety. you got to do something when everyone else is doing something else. It was a completely different kind of song that turned out to be important to Sasha Fair Jones when he heard it in a psych ward in 2019, during a horrible time in his life. It was grim. It was like a movie grim. We were eating the institutional food. A lot of people in that room were extremely bad shape. And this amazing woman kept playing I'm Blessed. And the first time I heard it, I was like, Lady, this is a little too cheerful. Ask me how I'm doing, I'm blessed, yes. Living every moment, no regrets. Charlie Wilson, I love. I love his voice so much. I just love him. I had to just sort of get over myself and absorb it as a song, and I was sort of like, yeah, I am blessed. I'm here. In the 1970s, Charlie Wilson was the successful lead singer of the Gap Band with crossover R&B hits. Then came addiction to alcohol, cocaine, and crack. He ended up very unhoused and like in really, really dire, dire straits, like no joke stuff. He suffered greatly when he was using. But the singer met, then married, a drug counselor. He has been sober for decades. I think it is a sobriety song when he says riding clean. I think he means clean in the way that we mean clean. Riding clean, living dreams, just left the barber and I'm feeling like my He's so happy. It definitely makes being sober sound pretty great. Probably the best known sobriety song, Gotta Be Sober by Pink. I don't wanna be the girl laughs the loudest. This song, Sober, was a pop hit in 2009. It was nominated for a Grammy. Pink has been open about past substance abuse. Here the lyrics are it's so good till it goes bad. When it's good, then it's good, it's so good till it goes bad. Till you're trying to find the you that you want. And I've heard myself crying never again. And I don't think there's anyone who has gotten sober who doesn't understand every single word of this song. A lot of celebrity musicians have recently written songs with the same title, Sober. Definitely interesting. Pink, Demi Lovato, Kelly Clarkson, Lord, And Selena Gomez. The men don't have songs called Sober. The guys have to be like, What's a clever way of saying this? The women are more like, yeah, I got sober, here's my song. And, you know, the Demi Lovato one is really pretty raw. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know why I do it every, every, every time it's only when I'm lonely. And in some ways, one of the most important because if it's too euphemistic, people ignore it. You know, Demi Lovato is just saying it out loud in plain language. The best current sobriety songs are not surprisingly in country, like That's Why I'm Here, I think is a really good song. And it was a hit for Kenny Chesney. I ain't had nothing to drink I knew that's probably what you think If I drop by this time of night That might be the single most AA meeting song I've ever heard. When he says That's Why I'm Here, it's one of the most clearly, like, I'm glad I am sober songs. You know, it's the simple things in life, like the kids at home and a loving wife that you miss the most when you lose control. It's the simple things in life, like the kids at home and a loving wife that you miss the most. 
when you lose control and everything you love starts to disappear and everything you love starts to disappear yeah i've been there that's why i'm here i love that i love that stuff Songs about not drinking cut across genres. We obviously cannot get to all of them, but here's one more that Steven Tyler of Aerosmith wrote about recovering from addiction. It's called Amazing. Sasha Frere-Jones says there should be more songs like this one that are not serious or grim about getting sober. You're living this incredibly juicy, pleasurable, amazing life. I mean, there should be, like, songs about having sex sober. There should be songs about, and then I had all of my money when I woke up in the morning because I didn't spend it. And, like, complete gratitude. There is one sober song Sasha Frere-Jones wishes he could hear. The one Elliot Smith did not live long enough to write. A song about how good it feels to be sober and alive. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on Morning Edition. How a shared belief in the spiritual properties of crystals led a mother and son to start Boston's only black-owned brick-and-mortar metaphysical shop. It's 7.29. It's been a decade since places like New York City bought into Vision Zero, an ambitious plan to eliminate traffic fatalities completely. Needless to say, that hasn't happened. The main reason that communities are failing is that there's not the will to make changes that are, in the end, probably going to slow people down driving. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. We unpack why on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley faced off last night in Des Moines ahead of Monday's Iowa caucuses. As Steve Futterman reports, the two Republican presidential hopefuls criticized each other and former President Donald Trump in the latest GOP presidential primary debate. There were plenty of attacks, DeSantis calling Haley a mealy-mouth, Haley characterizing DeSantis as a serial liar. Former President Trump declined to take part, but he wasn't forgotten. DeSantis criticized him for failing to come through with his promise to build a wall at the Mexican border. Haley criticized him for calling January 6th a beautiful day. DeSantis has spent so much time and money here that a good showing is vital, while Haley is already focusing much of her attention on New Hampshire. In Wyndham, New Hampshire, yesterday, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie formally suspended his Republican presidential campaign. As DeSantis and Haley went back and forth in Iowa, Trump took part in a town hall event hosted by Fox News. Trump was asked about a potential running mate should he win the Republican presidential nomination. Well, I can't tell you that, really. I mean, I know who it's going to be. Give us a hint. I'll give you We'll do another show sometime. Wall Street futures are higher this morning. This is NPR News from Washington.
From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. During a stop in New Hampshire yesterday, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie announced he's suspending his presidential campaign. WBOR's Anthony Brooks reports Christie was the only Republican in the race who forcefully criticized former President Donald Trump. Christie ran against Trump in 2016 and then embraced him. But during this campaign, Christie called that a mistake and tried to make the case that Trump is not fit to be president. But his campaign was always a long shot in a party that still embraces the former president. My goal has never been to be just a voice against the hate and the division and the selfishness of what our party has become under Donald Trump. It's also been the win. Christie focused on New Hampshire, but was stuck in third place in most polls, way behind Trump and significantly behind Nikki Haley. He said it became clear that there was no path forward for him to win the nomination. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Anthony Brooks. Senate leaders on Beacon Hill say they're renewing a push to make community college free for every Massachusetts resident. Senate President Karen Spilka says her goal is to make all 15 of the state's community colleges free by this fall. The Massachusetts Association of Community Colleges reports the proposal would cost the state about $170 million each year. Spilka says she thinks she can pass the plan despite an expected drop in state tax revenue. The MBTA is investigating another near-miss between a train and a worker. Officials say a Green Line train entered a closed-off work zone near Medford Tufts on Monday night. No injuries were reported. T officials reported the issue to the Federal Transit Administration and the State Public Utilities Department. The New England Aquarium is reacting to news that an endangered North Atlantic right whale calf was injured after being hit by a boat. The calf was spotted in South Carolina with injuries to its head and mouth. Officials say it's not likely to survive. There are fewer than 360 right whales left in the world. The aquarium is urging lawmakers to implement more regulations to protect the species. It's 733. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. TheMusicEmporium.com. The Celtics rallied to an overtime win yesterday. Jason Tatum was the Knights' lead scorer with 45 points. Final score was 127 to 120. The Seas are on the road in Milwaukee tonight to take on the Bucks. And it'll be a late night for the Bruins and their fans. The Bees are in Las Vegas to play the Golden Knights during a 10 p.m. matchup. Clouds move in throughout the day today. Temperatures will rise to the low 40s. The clouds stick around tonight as it falls to around freezing, clearing overnight and sunny tomorrow in the mid-40s. A storm moves in, bringing rain and high winds late Friday night into Saturday morning. It's 39 degrees in Boston. You're at WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive. Nervive Nerve Relief is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. From the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, for nearly a century, supporting efforts to promote a just, equitable, and sustainable society. More at Mott.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ECMCFoundation.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm e. Martinez. Lawyers for New York State and for former President Donald Trump present closing arguments today in the trial involving his business practices. Trump had initially said he wanted to argue on his own behalf in court today. What we're now expecting is a little less dramatic than that. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has been covering the case. Andrea, so which of his uh, many court cases is this one? This is the case where the New York Attorney General says Trump made hundreds of millions of dollars by repeatedly lying about the value of his properties, like his triplex in Trump Tower, which he claimed was worth three times as big as it actually was, about $300 million more than it actually was worth. This is important because banks and insurance companies made financial decisions based on these false statements. Even before testimony began, the judge ruled that Trump had committed persistent and repeated fraud. So think about that. We have the leading candidate for the Republican presidential nomination, who a judge has found lied over and over to illicitly profit. All right. So what's on the line today? So there are six more causes of action to be decided. They involve conspiracy, insurance fraud, and falsifying documents. The attorney general says Trump made $370 million more than he should have because he lied, and that he owes that back to New York. The number actually went up after the trial testimony from $250 million. And the New York AG wants Trump permanently banned from doing business in New York and for his older sons, Don Jr. and Eric, to be barred for five years. But Trump's lawyers say no one was harmed, the banks made out, and that the AG didn't prove her case. Okay. Trump was supposed to, or at least planning, to give his own arguments. What happened to that? So we've been through this a few times already in this trial. In an email chain released by the court yesterday, Trump's lawyers said he'd be making arguments on his own behalf. The AG objected, and the judge said, that's not really the normal course of business, but okay, Trump can speak if he sticks to the same rules as his lawyers, making legal arguments, not disparaging people or making a political speech. And Trump's lawyers said, nope, we don't agree. So the judge said no dice. After that, Trump's lawyer, Alina Haba, said, is anyone surprised anymore? That's a statement that can work on a lot of levels. As of now, we don't expect Trump today. He was in Iowa last night at a town hall, but we expect a day of arguments followed by a verdict in the next few weeks. Yeah, but Trump has another trial in New York next week. What's that one about? Right. So that is the second defamation case brought by writer E. Jean Carroll. Last spring, a jury found Trump had sexually assaulted her and then defamed her and awarded her $5 million. There were two major incidents of defamation and two cases. That was the second case, which for complex legal reasons was the first to go to trial. This trial, starting Monday, is for the first instance of defamation when Trump as president said, quote, she's not my type. And as the judge in the case put it this week, quote, the fact that Mr. Trump sexually abused, indeed raped Ms. Carroll, has been conclusively established. So the only issue is how much money Trump owes her. It's expected it could be tens of millions of dollars more since the first instance of defamation is the one that really affected her reputation. So we could also see a verdict in that case sometime this month. All right. Thank you. That's NPR's Andrew Bernstein. Thanks. Thank you.
tough workout can lead to muscle soreness a day or so later. Now, what if that feeling was on overdrive? Well, that's what some people with long COVID face after they do some exercise. New research is giving scientists, though, a clear picture of what's going on. Here's NPR's Will Stone. Hit the gym, get back in shape. It's advice many patients with long COVID have heard. David Petrino says this notion that exercise is medicine has proven difficult to dispel in the broader medical community. It is very clear that this is not a typical response to exercise. They feel incredibly unwell. They become bedbound. Their whole system feels as though they've been poisoned. Petrino runs a long COVID clinic at Mount Sinai in New York, where he sees what's known as post-exertional malaise. It's a hallmark of long COVID and similar complex illnesses like chronic fatigue syndrome. Symptoms are typically extreme muscle pain, fatigue, and brain fog that last days, even a week after physical activity. But when they complain, Petrino says so often patients aren't taken seriously. Their lived experience is not being listened to or validated. That's why he says new research from the Netherlands is important because it shows clear evidence of a biological basis for their symptoms. Scientists there compared 25 people with long COVID to those who'd had COVID and fully recovered. Both groups did an exercise test on a stationary bike that lasted about 10 to 15 minutes. The research team drew blood and took muscle biopsies from their legs before and after the exercise. Braden Charlton is at Vrij University in Amsterdam and one of the study's authors. This is a very real disease and we see this at basically every parameter that we measure. After exercising, the consequences to the muscle were dramatic. Charlton says multiple tests revealed the mitochondria, the body's cellular power plants, are compromised, meaning their capacity to take up oxygen and produce energy is impaired. What we saw immediately, and it's very profound, is that their mitochondria don't function in a healthy way. Charlton says they also found atrophy and immense amounts of cell death in the muscle tissue. There is a lot more muscle breakdown than we would expect to happen following the exercise. Taken together, the results show widespread abnormalities that help explain patients' severe reaction to physical activity. I think it's a very strong study, and the messages are striking. That's Akiko Iwasaki, a scientist at Yale University who's studying long COVID. There is a real problem in converting oxygen into energy in these people, and literally they can't recharge their battery. The deep dive into muscles also turned up tiny blood clots. They were elevated in those with symptoms, and that only got worse with exercise. The clots were found inside the muscle, not in the blood vessels. That was a surprise to Rizia Pretorius at Stellenbosch University in South Africa. That means that the microclots can actually have travel through the damaged vasculature into the muscle. And that is huge. Because if it can happen to muscle, then it can happen to the brain and any other organ. And if the linings of the blood vessels are really that compromised, she says it would also cause problems with the mitochondria. More work needs to be done on these different lines of evidence. In the meantime, David Petrino at Mount Sinai says doctors need to take these findings very seriously. We need to step out of this erroneous mindset of, well, no pain, no gain. No, post-exertional malaise is different. He says maybe with this new evidence, more people will listen. Will Stone, NPR News.
This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBMR. We're tracking ongoing challenges from this week's storms, plus Republican candidates debate ahead of the Iowa caucuses. Coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, former President Donald Trump had planned to deliver his own closing arguments today in his civil fraud trial in New York, but he changed his mind after the judge in the case imposed limitations on what he could say. A mix of sun and clouds today, along with temperatures in the low 40s. Those fall to the low 30s tonight and overnight skies clear. Sunny tomorrow in the mid 40s before a storm moves in late Friday night, bringing rain and high winds into Saturday morning. It's 39 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Habib and Associates Architects, serving the greater Boston area with comprehensive architectural services. Proud to support WBUR. Habib, A-R-C-H.com. A graduate of Holy Cross College in Worcester is set to become the first woman to run a major airline. Joanna Garrity will become CEO of JetBlue next month. She'll be taking over from former CEO Robin Hayes. He's stepping down due to advice from his doctor. JetBlue is the largest carrier at Logan Airport. Somerville-based Sublime Systems is building its first manufacturing plant in Holyoke. The company creates a fossil fuel-free replacement for cement. Sublime says Holyoke's hydroelectric resources make it the perfect spot for the plant. The facility is expected to be up and running by 2026. Provincetown is one of the best places to visit in the U.S. That's according to a new ranking from Needham-based TripAdvisor. Provincetown ranks number five on its Traveler's Choice Best of the Best Destination Awards list. The town was popular for its beaches, restaurants, and shopping experiences. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Hiscox, committed to helping small businesses protect their dreams. Quotes and information on customized insurance for specific risks are available at Hiscox.com. Hiscox, business insurance experts. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. A growing interest in crystals and what many believe are their spiritual properties led a mother and son to open body, stone, and soul in Jamaica Plain. WBUR's Ariel Gray visited the Black-owned metaphysical shop to learn more. A few years ago, Tasha Kitty got off a virtual work call, sat down on her couch, and cried her eyes out. She'd been working as a chief people officer at tech companies before starting her own HR consulting company. I mean, I was ugly crying, right? (laughs) Like I cried and Marcel came downstairs and he's like, what's wrong with you? (laughs) And I was like, it's work. And then like a light switch, I said, I didn't want my son, he was in high school at the time. And I was like, I don't want my son to think that that's what work means. Kitty sat down with her son, Marcel Morris Howell, and knew it was time for a change. So they talked about opening a business together. They both had an interest in crystals and spirituality. And I said, what makes you feel like a 10 out of 10? And let's talk about it. And that's how Body, Stone and Soul was then born. Body, Stone and Soul is Boston's only Black-owned brick-and-mortar metaphysical shop. It stocks a variety of spiritual items and also offers services like tarot card readings. 
To the left, we have our affirmations and tarot corner. So we have books there, tarot cards, affirmation cards. Right in front of you, you'll see our candles, our sage, which is all farmed, super important. We don't wild harvest. And of course, of they sell crystals. Kitty and Morris Howell point out some of their favorites. Labradorite, which is really good for transformation. And they call that because if you see it from one angle, it's brown, but you see how the blue tint comes when you move it? Really good transformation stone. I really like Rainbow Flory because it's a learning stone. It's all about consolidation of a chaotic mind. Scientists say there's no evidence that things like crystals treat physical or mental ailments. However, Morris Howell and Kitty are part of a growing group of people blending different metaphysical practices to create their own approach to spirituality. Spiritualist practices that include African-derived religious practices were marked for so long as illegal as the source of slave rebellions, as the source of all kinds of maleficence when it comes to order. That's J.T. Roan, assistant professor of Africana Studies and Geography at Rutgers University. He points out that for Black people in particular, spiritualist practices carry great importance. They provide working-class Black people with effective religion, whether that's through conjuring, whether that's through tarot, whether that's through other kinds of direct interface with, with the divine and the spiritual and the ancestral. The store has developed a steady flow of dedicated customers since opening its doors. The mother and son duo have had people visit from New Hampshire to support their small business. It is shock, surprise, and just joy that we're Black-owned. And then when they find out that we're family-owned, it just amplifies that. Kitty points out that all kinds of people have come into the store. It's what she loves the most about crystals. We welcome people here from all backgrounds, and people from all backgrounds come in here. I think crystals are, you know, the Earth's gift to everyone. In a fractured world, crystals do not discriminate. The only thing required is an open mind and good intentions. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Arielle Gray. It's a Thursday on WBUR. Coming up at 8.20 on WBUR's Morning Edition, a federal case against books restrictions in Florida is going forward after a judge ruled there's a viable argument that removing certain books from public schools is unconstitutional. It's 7.49. I'm Vipa Fernandez. A rural high school counselor with little resources is getting creative to help her students get a taste of college. We work really hard on trying to figure out how can we make, you know, lemonade out of the lemons that we've been handed. Get inspired with the National School Counselor of the Year, Diana Virgil, next time here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. The United Nations' highest court today holds hearings into allegations that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. Closing arguments will begin today in Donald Trump's civil fraud trial just days ahead of the Iowa caucuses. And former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie has dropped out of the race for the Republican presidential nomination. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lexus Broadway in Boston, presenting Girl from the North Country, playing in Boston this March. Written and directed by Connor McPherson, this new musical reimagines the songs of Bob Dylan, including Forever Young, Slow Train Coming, Like a Rolling Stone, and Make You Feel My Love. More at LexusBroadwayInBoston.com. Low 40s today, and it'll grow overcast, mostly cloudy tonight and around freezing, sunny and mid-40s tomorrow, Storms move in late Friday night, bringing rain and high winds that'll last through Saturday morning. It's 40 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. The only Chinese-language democracy will elect a new president this Saturday. Presidential elections have been around for less than 30 years, and people in Taiwan cherish that right to vote. Meanwhile, China, right across the strait, has long been saying it is the sole legitimate government of both China and Taiwan. And every election, the issue of China takes center stage. My colleague Elsa Chang, host of NPR's All Things Considered, has been talking to voters in Taiwan and joins us now. Hi, Elsa. Hey, Layla. Okay, so you've been there, what, more than a week now. So what's the energy been like around this election? I mean, as you mentioned, democracy, it's still kind of novel on this island. Like, this is only the eighth presidential election in Taiwan's history. So a lot of the culture around elections here, it's exuberant. It's celebratory. Candidates ride around on these campaign trucks, and while they roll on by, voters are cheering and and setting off firecrackers. And these candidates, they're standing on the truck beds, singing and shouting for like hours at a time. Like, here's Su Chaohui, a legislator running for re-election whom we had spent a lot of time with. Also, when you're watching campaign speeches in Taiwan, often you will see these organ players scoring those speeches live, like with music, to, you know, intensify people's emotions as they're listening. It's really incredible to watch. Okay, so it kind of sounds like a party. Let's talk about the two frontrunners right now. So you have the incumbent party, which is the Democratic Progressive Party, or DPP. And on the other side, you have the Guomindang, or KMT. And, you know, I guess the differences between them on the most important issue, which is China, are pretty subtle right now. Like, both parties favor maintaining the status quo between Taiwan and China, meaning they both want Taiwan to be self-governed even if Taiwan is not formally independent. Though the DPP has made noises in the past about formal independence. And that's why Beijing has made it clear that they would be quite unhappy if the DPP candidate, Lai Qingde, won. He's Mm. the current vice president of Taiwan. Meanwhile, the KMT candidate, Hou Youyi, is promising a stronger relationship with China, both diplomatically and economically. And China clearly prefers a KMT victory. But, you know, ultimately, Leila, it's unclear whether any election outcome would prevent China from one day possibly forcing unification with Taiwan. Okay, so what are voters saying about this? Is China generally the top issue on their minds going into this election? It certainly seems that way. Like, our producer Mallory Yu went to a rally for the KMT, and they met a voter who calls herself Excited Sister, or Ji Douqie. She's, like, at all the KMT rallies, is usually wearing sparkly boas and rhinestones and these huge hats. And she's saying here, I want peace. She doesn't want independence for Taiwan, and she wants Taiwan's relations with both the U.S. and China to be stable. 
We are all one family, she's saying. And then Mallory also went to a college campus here in Taipei where they talked to a few college students, and one of them was a woman named Serene Zeng. So Serene's saying here that she thinks Taiwan does not belong to China. And because of that, she will not be voting for anyone who leans towards China. Okay, so China, clearly a big issue. But what else are voters thinking about? I mean, I guess like any election anywhere, people are worried about things like low wages or the rising cost of living. And we met this one man in the southern city of Tainan. His name is Xia Zhouge. And we actually approached him at first because he's a street performer who was dressed as the Monkey King. That's like this really famous character in Chinese folklore. But, you know, as we were talking to him, he ended up having some pretty strong opinions about the election. He thinks the DPP has not paid enough attention to the economy and what the people of Taiwan want. For example, housing prices in Taiwan have been rising, and he thinks the DPP has not done enough to control that. And, you know, this is something that you also hear from a lot of young voters. Like the DPP, they've been in power for eight years. They're considered the establishment. So many voters here have flocked to a third party on the ballot this year, the Taiwan People's Party, or TPP. And one question on Saturday is whether the TPP candidate, Ke Wenzhe, will peel away enough voters to actually affect the outcome of this election. That's NPR's Elsa Chang, host of All Things Considered out in Taipei, Taiwan. Thanks, Elsa. Thank you, Leila. In pictures of the farthest planets from the sun, Uranus looks like a pale green orb, while Neptune usually looks much bluer. A new analysis reveals their true colors. Here's NPR's Nell Greenfield Boyce. The only spacecraft ever to visit Uranus and Neptune was Voyager 2. It flew by both ice giants in the 1980s, sending back historic snapshots. Patrick Irwin is an astronomer with the University of Oxford. He says the images captured by this spacecraft were taken with different color filters. It's got a green filter, it's got a blue filter, it's got an orange filter. Those separate images then had to be recombined. That's a surprisingly subtle process. He says back then, choices were made when processing the images. The colors got tweaked to highlight Neptune's interesting features, like bands of clouds and a dark spot. The Voyager team was open about this, but Irwin says in the decades since then, the subtleties of how the images were made have been forgotten. These depictions of Neptune and Uranus have become entrenched. People now just think, well, let's have a look. He and some colleagues were recently trying to better understand the clouds on these two planets using data from instruments on the Hubble Space Telescope as well as the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope. The scientists realized they could use this data to rebalance the images taken by Voyager 2. And produce color images that you would actually see were you there with the spacecraft looking at the planet. What they found is that Uranus and Neptune actually look almost the same. They are both pale bluish green. Neptune might be slightly more blue, but the difference is nothing like what you'd see if you just Google for images of these two planets. A report on all this is published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. A mission to orbit Uranus recently topped a wish list compiled by an expert panel that advises NASA on scientific priorities. The earliest a mission like that could launch is sometime in the 2030s. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. This
This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. It'll grow overcast today and we'll have temperatures in the low 40s. Partly cloudy and around freezing tonight. Sunny in mid-40s tomorrow. A storm moves in overnight, bringing rain and gusty winds. That should last through Saturday morning. It's 39 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The United Nations' highest court opens hearings on allegations that Israel is committing genocide in Gaza. It's Thursday, January 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the Israeli military is sending thousands of soldiers home from Gaza, in part to boost the country's economy. While it's common to talk about the international pressure on Israel to reach a ceasefire, there is also going to be internal pressure by people who need to work. Also, after years of resistance, regulators approve some cryptocurrency investment funds and this hour. And it's clear to me tonight that there isn't a path for me to win the nomination. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie drops out of the Republican presidential race after making comments about Nikki Haley. And she's going to get smoked. And you and I both know it. She's not up to this. Increasing clouds in 40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. South Africa's case against Israel is beginning today at the International Court of Justice. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports Israel is accused of committing genocide against the Palestinian people. South Africa filed an 84-page application to the court that accuses Israel of committing genocidal acts such as killing Palestinians in Gaza, including women and children who, according to the Gaza Health Ministry, make up around 70 percent of the more than 23,000 fatalities. Israel's President Isaac Herzog calls the accusation atrocious and preposterous, saying Israel is defending itself against Hamas, whose attack killed 1,200, according to Israel. Legal experts interviewed by NPR say proving genocide is extremely difficult because a specific intent to do so must be proven. Experts say a final ruling in this case could take years, but that a provisional ruling in the coming weeks that asks Israel to refrain from further military activity in Gaza is likely. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. In the U.S., closing arguments are expected today in New York in a trial involving former President Donald Trump. He's charged with inflating his wealth to obtain favorable terms for business loans and insurance. NPR's Jimena Bustillo has more. The state attorney general sued the former president, his two eldest sons, and several other executives of the Trump Organization, resulting in a trial in the fall of last year. The Trump team has argued that Trump and his sons were not involved in creating the financial documents. The judge has already ruled that fraud occurred and Trump is liable. But a verdict determining how much Trump is fined and how he could be limited in conducting business in New York is expected in the weeks following the closing arguments. 
Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, New York. There are only a few more days before a federal government shutdown could happen. Congressional leaders have struck a deal outlining a government funding plan. But hard-right conservatives in the House say it does not do enough to cut spending. NPR's Claudia Grisales says House Speaker Mike Johnson thinks a government shutdown will be averted. Johnson told reporters he isn't ruling anything out as far as another temporary spending bill. That's what we're under right now in terms of the government staying open. The first of two shutdown deadlines, however, is going to approach January 19th. So that only leaves days to hammer out a final comprehensive deal. With all the infighting we're seeing with House Republicans, that means they're going to need plenty of time to come to a final deal that will pass both chambers. NPR's Claudia Grisales reporting. Powerful winter storms continue to wallop the U.S. The National Weather Service says that a fresh winter storm will emerge into the Plain States today and charge toward the Great Lakes by tomorrow. Very frigid weather is settling in the central U.S. Windchill values are well below zero. You're listening to NPR. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Multiple media outlets report the New England Patriots are parting ways with longtime head coach Bill Belichick. WBUR has not independently confirmed Belichick's departure. The apparent decision was made days after the team finished with just four wins and 13 losses this season. Belichick spent 24 years with the Pats. He helped lead the team to six Super Bowl wins. The Massachusetts Department of Public Health says flu severity in the state is high and COVID rates are rising. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports that many doctors are urging people to reduce their risk of infection by getting vaccinated. Flu, COVID, and other respiratory viruses are on the upswing, according to state data. Infections typically increase this time of year, but the level of illness right now remains below the past few winters. COVID is evolving. Dr. Ruan Barnabas is chief of infectious diseases at Massachusetts General Hospital. She says fewer patients are hospitalized with COVID than in past years. A combination of vaccination and natural immunity means that people are better able to fight COVID, and the virus itself is evolving. But COVID and flu can still be serious, and doctors say it's not too late to get vaccines. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale McCluskey. A group of Jewish students at Harvard are suing the college for alleged discrimination. The students claim the university is not properly addressing issues of anti-Semitism on campus. Concerns over anti-Semitism at the school prompted a congressional inquiry. That probe uncovered issues that led to the resignation of former Harvard President Claudine Gay. A historic main lighthouse is in need of repairs following yesterday's storm. The Boston Globe reports the bell tower at Pemaquid Point Light sustained significant damage that might not be able to be fixed. Officials at the park say large waves and heavy winds contributed to the damage. Tickets for this year's Boston Calling Festival go on sale later this morning. Pop superstar Ed Sheeran, country singer Tyler Childers, and Las Vegas rockers The Killers will headline the three-day concert. It takes place over Memorial Day weekend. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Deloitte. Unlocking innovation takes more than AI or cloud. It takes outcome-focused application, too. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash U.S. slash engineering advantage. 
The Celtics managed to pull off a seven-point win in overtime last night. They beat the Minnesota Timberwolves 127-120. The Seas play again tonight, this time on the road against the Milwaukee Bucks. The Bruins are also away tonight. They'll hit the ice with the Las Vegas Golden Knights at 10 p.m. Increasing clouds throughout the day today with highs in the low 40s. Tonight, skies clear and temperatures drop to around freezing. Tomorrow, the sun returns and will have highs in the mid-40s. There's another round of rain and windstorms expected late Friday night into Saturday morning. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. Chris Christie is the latest Republican to drop out of the presidential race. The former New Jersey governor left days before the first in the nation Iowa caucuses. A couple of other Republicans remain trying to be the top alternative to former President Trump, and they were in Iowa last night for a CNN debate. Minnesota Public Radio's Clay Masters heard it all in person. He's in Des Moines. Clay, hi. Good morning. Chris Christie's out. Uh, How does that change things? I mean, it changes things next to nothing in Iowa. Christie hasn't set foot in the state since he announced his presidential bid. He was betting it all on New Hampshire and was polling in just the single digits uh, here in Iowa. Donald Trump continues to be the front runner in Iowa, and Christie was running as the sharpest critic to the former president. And, you know, Trump has a lot of support from Iowa Republicans. So those that are left trying to be that Trump alternative are having to walk this tightrope of not really calling him out too much because they want to pull away some of his support. And last night, we finally got to see the two more viable Trump alternative Republicans on a debate stage by themselves at Drake University in Iowa. And I'm just trying to think this through, Clay. Uh, Christie had no effect in Iowa. He did have some support in New Hampshire. So there's a question of who might get that support and also a question about whether Trump's remaining rivals are running for president or for vice president. But in any case, Nikki Haley, Ron DeSantis on the same stage. What was it like? Well, the two finally got to say the attacks they've been saying about the other one out on the campaign trail in front of each other. Haley and DeSantis agreed Trump should be on the stage with them. In fact, he was actually just a few miles away from the debate in Des Moines doing a Fox News town hall, his normal kind of counter-programming or trolling or whatever you want to call it. But it was a chance to see Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis without the other candidates who have been on the debate stage in the past. They were asked about immigration and the economy, abortion by the moderators, but it was all overshadowed by the two attacking each other and accusing the other one of lying. But every time he lies, Drake University, don't turn this into a drinking game because you will be overserved by the end of the night. If she says she's never said something, that definitely means she said it. And then she'll say, you're lying, you're lying. That means not only did she say it, but she's on videotape saying it. So there was a a lot of that, but there were also some jabs at Trump during the debate. But, you know, the former president walked away victorious by not even showing up, right? I mean, look, Trump is running like an incumbent, not to be bothered by being on a debate stage with these two. Uh, He can have a town hall like he did last night where he sets the tone and gets asked about Chris Christie dropping out, giving him a chance to once again say he's not threatened by any of his Republican rivals. But, you know, he's clearly feeling somewhat of a threat in New Hampshire for sure because he's pivoted to attacking Nikki Haley in recent days, even posting an article on social media falsely questioning her eligibility to become president as the child of two immigrants. Yeah, yeah, obviously is qualified. Um, What are you watching as the caucuses uh, arrive next week? 
I'll be watching the skies and the temperatures. How about that? Some parts of Iowa received over a foot of snow earlier this week. Meteorologists expect another big snow event tonight, uh, dumping even more on the state. In past caucus cycles, it's not uncommon to meet Iowans who are finally starting to go out and take in their opinions for caucus night at the last minute. So it might be hard for folks, no matter how hardy they think they are, to get out there and do that. On top of all this, it's going to be incredibly cold on caucus night. The forecasted low in Des Moines on caucus night, 20 degrees below zero, and that's before you factor in the wind chill. So there are some obvious questions about what that could do for the coldest Iowa caucus night ever and, and what impact that could have on turnout. 20 below zero. Minnesota Public Radio's Clay Masters in Iowa. Thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. Here's another story we've been following. Israel's army says it is pulling thousands of troops out of Gaza and sending them home to their families as well as their jobs in civilian life. Military spokesman Daniel Hagari said the reasons were not just tactical. This will significantly ease the burden on the economy and allow them to gather strength for the upcoming activities in the next year, as the fighting will continue and they will still be required. Ease the burden on the economy. The most developed economy in the Middle East has been losing a lot of its civilian labor force for the war. NPR's Frank Langfitt reports from Tel Aviv. Ross is an upbeat 29-year-old who works here as a software engineer in an office of glass walls that looks out towards the Mediterranean. He's also a member of the Israeli Army's Special Forces Reserves, which gives new meaning to the concept of multitasking. Early on in the Gaza war, Roz was on a call with an overseas customer discussing a software project. Meanwhile, I was at my base preparing for a mission. I had to jungle between those two, and I remember it being super, super hard. In part because Israeli aircraft were firing guns overhead. One of the customers asked, what is this noise? And I had to explain that this is shooting sounds. Raz's unit forbids him from giving his full name for security reasons. He spent the last three months splitting his time between military missions, training, and developing software. Being a soldier is harder than being a software engineer. I also think that preserving the high-tech sector in Israel is a very important mission. Israel's home to one of the world's top tech sectors. Think products such as Waze, the Driving Directions app. But tens of thousands of Israeli tech workers such as Roz are also reservists, which means tech has faced a major labor shortage since the war began. Dan Ben-David teaches economics at Tel Aviv University. High-tech is Israel's most productive sector it employs only 10% of the workforce, but it accounts for half of Israel's exports. And many of these people serve in the reserves, and their absence from the economy is disproportionate. At the beginning of the war, the Israeli army said it was mobilizing 360,000 reservists, more than for any previous war this century. The Bank of Israel estimates the war will cost about $58 billion, and that the economy shrank by 2% in the final three months of the year. So while it's common to talk about the international pressure that's increasing on Israel to reach a ceasefire, there is also going to be increasing internal pressure by people who need to work. Rami Ben-Ephraim has felt the labor pinch. He's a retired Air Force general and tech firm owner. More than half of the workers at Planet Nine, one of his companies, are reservists, including the firm's chief operating officer, who flies an F-16, leading a group on bombing missions and close air support. Benefraim says when the war started, his message to his COO was simple. Just go to the Air Force. You're under the Air Force right now. I'll call you once a week. I'll tell you what's happening here. You don't have any tasks. Another employee serves in a cyber unit. He splits his seven-day work week between the company and the military, including night shifts. 
I'm just trying to make sure that they are not exhausted. I'm telling them again, the military is more important than us right now. If you have some extra time, please come and help us here. The company's had to push back some projects, but Ben Ephraim says he's made adjustments and his business is growing well. Things are much harder for some newer firms. The war has spooked some foreign investors and some early stage startups are at risk of shutting down. The government says it's offering a total of $100 million in funding to help keep them afloat. Jorbin runs the Israeli Innovation Authority, a government agency. If the company is successful, they will pay us back the loan as a royalty from their revenues. And if they fail, the money is gone. This is the risk that we are taking. The war is just the latest drag on tech investment. Last January, the government launched plans to reform the country's judiciary. Many Israelis saw it as an attempt to undermine democracy and took to the streets. Foreign investors worried about the country's rule of law. Gigi Levy-Weiss is a leading tech venture capitalist. Founders that started companies were told by their investors that they should form the companies outside of Israel. Because if Israel has no independent court system, then you want the companies to be incorporated elsewhere. Instead of launching 13 or 1,400 new companies annually, as it typically does, Israel's tech sector only formed about 400 last year, Levy-Weiss says. Which is the same number we've had in 2003. So that's like going 20 years backwards. In the wake of the Hamas attack on October 7th and the subsequent war in Gaza, the Israeli government says it's shelled its judicial reform plans. For now, tech leaders are bullish on the sector's resilience, but Levy Weiss still has concerns. I worry that unless we create full certainty, many investors that loved investing in Israel are going to say, I need to see for a second what's happening. I need to see that the war is really over. I need to see that there's a solution for Gaza. I need to see that there isn't a reform anymore. As for Raz, the software engineer, the army released him from reserve duty this month. He's moving to Southeast Asia and excited about a new job as a project manager, still with an Israeli company, working full-time. Frank Langford, NPR News, Tel Aviv. By just two weeks into 2024, some people who made New Year's resolutions are giving up on them. My New Year's resolution was to stop shopping, but I broke it after two days. One of my biggest resolutions this year was to be committed to a morning routine. My resolution lasted approximately zero days. Okay. Nick Diamond <laughs> from New York and Kelly Hadler from Minneapolis are a little earlier than some in breaking those promises to themselves, but they are not alone. A 2020 Ipsos poll found that more than half of people who make a resolution drop it long before the year is over. Most people will give up when the resolutions or their attention will just be on something else and they will no longer even think about their resolutions. Ayelet Fishbeck is a motivation scientist with the University of Chicago. She says most resolutions fail because people set goals that are just too hard to keep. No one is setting a resolution to watch more TV this year. We asked listeners for their tips to strengthen their resolve. Carlson Shook is an eighth grade science teacher who says... She taught her students the connection between the feel-good chemicals in your brain and the goals that you set and try to meet. She says setting smaller goals that you can check off along the way gets that dopamine hit to keep momentum. Kind of like that cute little fish Dory in Finding Nemo. When life gets you down, you know what you got to do? I don't want to know what you got to do. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. <laughs> Fishback agrees, calling it a good approach. 
You want to have small wins. We, as people, we're not designed to pursue really long-term goals. Another no. listener, uh, Angela Brad, says that uh, after New Year's, she noticed her gym fills up with people who disappear weeks later, perhaps spending too much time neglecting their regular life. Fishbeck says for success, a goal has to work with your life. Life is going to come back and say, hey, what about everything else that you're supposed to do? And enjoying your goal is a way to find success. So go run that marathon, or maybe no. start with a half marathon. I'll okay. be half as impressed. Half is okay. I'll be half okay. as impressed. Fine. Yes. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your Thursday with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the legendary coach of Alabama's Crimson Tide, Nick Saban, is retiring. It's 819. I'm Vipa Fernandez. A rural high school counselor with little resources is getting creative to help her students get a taste of college. We work really hard on trying to figure out how can we make, you know, lemonade out of the lemons that we've been handed. Get inspired with the National School Counselor of the Year, Diana Virgil, next time here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR. Increasingly cloudy today. We'll have highs in the low 40s. Mostly overcast tonight. Temperatures will fall to the low 30s. Clearing skies overnight. Make way for a sunny day tomorrow with highs in the mid 40s. A rain and windstorm moves in late Friday night and less into Saturday morning. It's 40 degrees in Boston. Former WBUR midday anchor Jack Lepiars returns to city space for two shows that blend circus and stand-up comedy. Those are on January 26th and 27th. Get tickets at WBUR.org events. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Sony Pictures Classics presenting Freud's Last Session, a new film starring Anthony Hopkins as Sigmund Freud and Matthew Good as C.S. Lewis, who converge in a battle over the existence of God, now playing only in theaters. From Jitasa, providing bookkeeping, accounting, and CFO services exclusively to the nonprofit sector. Jitasa is committed to helping nonprofits do what they do best. More at J-I-T-A-S-A dot com. From Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. A federal case against book restrictions in Florida schools is going forward. A judge ruled there is a viable argument that removing certain books is unconstitutional. NPR's Tovia Smith reports. 
Plaintiffs call the case against Florida's Escambia Public School District the first of its kind. They argue that book restrictions violate authors' rights to free expression and students' rights to access information. The judge gave that claim the green light, but blocked another that book restrictions also violate students' equal protection rights. Katie Blankenship is with the free speech group Pen America, who brought the lawsuit along with Penguin Random House and others. We didn't win on absolutely everything. But the decisions that the judge had made are a major win for the First Amendment. The lawsuit accuses Escambia schools of removing LGBTQ and race-related books for ideological reasons. District officials declined to comment, but attorneys have argued the case should be dismissed, saying when public schools choose library books, that's effectively government speech and not bound by the First Amendment. But Blankenship says the judge didn't buy it. What the state is trying to say is extreme. And the judge said very clearly to do so would be a dangerous precedent and declined. The judge told both sides to try and work out a settlement, but that may be unlikely. Vicki Baggett, an Escambia school teacher who's filed scores of book challenges, says the court should clarify when sexually explicit material crosses the line. Do students need to read this in order to have a better grasp of how to graduate their high school graduation exams? The answer is no. I really believe if the judge sees what's in some of these books, he's going to be shocked. While she's hoping for a precedent-setting decision supporting book restrictions, plaintiffs say we want to be the blueprint for overturning them. Tovia Smith, NPR News. Native American voters in Arizona played a big role in the state's 2020 election, but many still struggle to get a ballot. NPR's Jimena Bustillo introduces us to some of the people trying to help. Ashley Edison sits in a coffee shop in Gilbert, Arizona, and talks about her late grandmother. My grandma, she was born on top of a hill on a reservation nearby her house. The 23-year-old Navajo Nation member says her grandma, Alta, had challenges registering to vote. She wasn't able to get an ID because she didn't have a birth certificate. She didn't have an address because their home was a P.O. box. Alta Edison worked for 40 years at the Coconino County office in Flagstaff. She's described as instrumental in creating the county's Native American elections outreach program and for helping drive record-breaking turnout in 2020. Were you guys really close? Yeah, really close. Ashley remembers that year because she was out with her grandma helping get tribal members registered. So every day we had to get there at 4 and be out there until 4 p.m. We would just sit out there as much as we can throughout the day. It it just turned into a routine afterwards. In a swing state like Arizona, where only a few thousand votes can make the difference, voting advocates want to boost registration among Native voters. But they still face many of the same barriers that Alta, later with the help of a granddaughter, fought to break down. If you are at a tribe that is more rural, like up north or even even east or west of Arizona, those would probably have some issues with addressing. That's Alex Castillo-Nunez, Civic Engagement Coordinator at the Intertribal Council of Arizona. Other challenges to registering also range from differing tribal IDs to language barriers to deep mistrust in government. The pandemic limited much of the organization's face-to-face engagement with tribal communities. They registered about 100 voters a month leading up to 2020. Ahead of 2022, they only did 100 total. Castillo Nunez is now looking forward to getting back out in person. 
because we're able to be there in person, it really builds that sense of community. It really builds that trust. It really builds that desire and, and that energy where you want to be able to motivate each other and participate. The Biden administration has sought to boost Native registration, too. In 2022, the administration pledged to designate five Indian Health Service voter registration pilots across the country by the end of 2023. But so far, they only have one, at Native Health in Central Phoenix. Walter Morello is the CEO of Native Health. He says patients are asked if they want to register to vote as a part of their regular visits. We have iPads or pads that people can use to register to vote, and now we have an obligation to get that to the Secretary of State in a timely way. Just nine registrations have been filed since the site was created in October. It's a slow start, but Murillo points to one initial impact. Whatever the numbers may be of people actually registering, now we have more organizations interested in helping people to register to vote. So uh, I think overall, us as an example, are helping to spread at least the availability of registration to vote. Janie Parrish, executive director of Arizona Native Vote, is among those working to reach voters on the ground. I got called home in 2020 from one of my mentor, and he just said, we need you at home. We need you to organize voters. She worked at the county Democratic Party level, but wanted more flexibility to reach her community. The party side, we'll let them figure that out. You know, we're not gonna push, but what we need is people to be informed, and then we need them to be excited to, to think about how to be informed and participating. But registering to vote is one thing, voting is another. Back at Native Health, Val Bailey is helping her daughter make snacks. She registered to vote for the first time in 2020, but doesn't think she will vote again. If nothing is going to change, why do we vote? Why do we try to have our voices heard when we're ignored? This sentiment is why people like Ashley Edison say you need to meet voters where they are. Her message takes her back to her grandma. It's bigger than just you as an individual, and I think people tend to forget that in order for me to be here, just me, you know, it took my ancestors to go through all those hardships. It does matter, like your voice matters. It's a message Edison carries as she hopes to register voters in 2024. Jimena Bustillo, NPR News, Phoenix. This is NPR News. If you're working on your fitness in the new year, join us at City Space on Monday, January 29th for a boxing night. It'll feature strength training and shadow boxing paired with hip-hop and house music. Tickets are at wbur.org events. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 845 on WBUR's Morning Edition. WBUR's Anthony Brooks tells us about former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie's decision to drop out of the Republican presidential race. It's 829.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Two days of hearings are underway at the U.N.'s top court amid allegations that Israeli forces are committing genocide in Gaza in the war with Hamas. Lawyers from South Africa are urging the International Court of Justice to order Israel to immediately end the fighting. Israel denies the allegations, calling them baseless. That war began in October after Hamas militants attacked southern Israel. The U.N. Security Council is calling on Houthi rebels in Yemen to end their attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea. As Linda Fasula reports, the council approved a resolution yesterday co-sponsored by the U.S. and Japan. The U.N. resolution strongly condemns the Houthi rebels' two dozen attacks since mid-November on merchant and commercial vessels traveling through the Red Sea and demands the attacks cease, saying they impede global commerce and undermine navigational rights as well as regional peace and security. The measure also condemns the provision of weapons to the Houthis without identifying Iran, the group's principal arms supplier. U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield said the Houthi attacks on international shipping are not only a security threat, but an economic one, increasing food, medicine, and energy prices. For NPR News, I'm Linda Pesulo in New York. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Twenty people face charges of disorderly conduct after protesting during Mayor Michelle Wu's State of the City address this week. The group called for a ceasefire in the ongoing Israel-Hamas conflict. The protesters began chanting and dropping flyers and banners at the start of Wu's speech Tuesday night. The Suffolk DA's office tells the Boston Herald those charged will appear in court in the coming days. Police are investigating a bomb threat made against the College of the Holy Cross yesterday afternoon. The threats forced the Worcester School to evacuate several campus buildings. Officials say they did not locate any suspicious packages or materials at the school. The women's elite runners for this year's Boston Marathon are the strongest group to ever enter the race. That's according to the Boston Athletic Association. It says the 19 women who plan to race this spring all have personal bests under 2 hours and 23 minutes. That group includes Helen O'Beary, who was the winner of both the Boston and New York City marathons last year. The 21st Boston Celtic Music Festival gets underway tonight in Cambridge. The annual event will be held at venues throughout the Boston area into Sunday night. Summer McCall is the festival's director. She says the event highlights the diversity of Boston's Celtic music scene. For a long time, Boston has held Celtic music as a kind of a cultural hub. And now I would say with confidence that Boston is the epicenter of Celtic music in America. McCall says the festival showcases mostly local bands from Irish, Scottish, and other Celtic communities. It's 8.33. WBUR supporters include Maplewood Country Day Camp, Southeastern Mass, where since 1965, their instructors have helped over 30,000 children learn to swim. MaplewoodYearRound.com. The Celtics remain undefeated at home. They secured their 18th straight win at the Garden during an overtime victory against the Timberwolves last night. Final score was 127 to 120. The Seas play again tonight, this time on the road against the Milwaukee Bucks. The Bruins are also away tonight. They face off against the Vegas Golden Knights at 10 p.m.
Clouds move in throughout the day today. Temperatures will rise to the low 40s. The clouds stick around tonight as it falls to around freezing, clearing overnight and sunny tomorrow in the mid 40s. A storm moves in bringing rain and high winds late Friday night into Saturday morning. It's 40 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Yarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, supporting books, radio, podcasts, film, television, theater, and more to bridge science and the humanities. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. This morning edition from NPR News, I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Alabama's Nick Saban, one of the winningest coaches in college football history, is retiring. The news came in a statement from Saban himself, who called Tuscaloosa a very special place. It's now a place that will have to find a successor to a coach that has won a record seven national championships, six while leading the Crimson Tide. Here with us to talk about it is news director of Alabama Public Radio, Pat Duggins. Pat, I was having dinner last night uh, with people who aren't necessarily big sports fans, but even they knew how big of a story this was. How did the how did the story break? How did the word break? Well, A, from what we're hearing, Saban told the players just yesterday of his decision. The team was just coming off a bruising defeat by the Michigan Wolverines, which cost the Tide its chance at a seventh title. Also yesterday was when the student body was just starting classes for the spring term. So last night, 6.42 p.m. Central Time, the university's football program announced that Saban was leaving. And within 10 minutes of that, an email went out from UA President Stuart Bell. So uh, it is a pretty big deal here. 6.42, seared into history. Uh, Saban said in a statement that he cares more about his overall legacy than the number of wins or losses. But, I mean, Pat, you're down there in Alabama. You know that everyone is used to winning championships. So how is life going to change maybe for a Crimson Tide football fan? Well, it depends on the age bracket of the fan you're talking to. Young people saw Nick Saban win a national title about once every three years. That third year was supposed to be this year when the Tide lost to Michigan in the Rose Bowl. Now, that had people like me who report on the Tide going, whoa, because it was, it was a break in that pattern. Now, if you talk to older fans, they remember the 10-year or so gap between titles after Bear Bryant left and when Gene Stallings won in 1992, and then the over 10-year gap between Stallings and Saban. So when the older fans talk to the younger fans, the older fans kind of sound like Marley's ghost in A Christmas <laughs> Carol, if you remember him warning everybody yeah. Scrooge to change his ways. So they're kind of like, remember the bad times, beware, beware, rattle chains, rattle chains, stuff like that. Yeah, who knows when uh, they might come back to an era that Saban established there. So what, what's your strongest memory? What's your biggest, fondest memory of the Saban era in Alabama? Well, I asked students about that. Now, a lot of them said it was the onside kick in 2015 that helped Alabama beat Clemson for the national title. Now, for the non-football folks out there, an onside kick is a little blooper kick, (laughs) and Alabama was able to successfully take the ball back, and that completely changed the game. Now, personally for me, it was the second championship in 2012. Tuscaloosa was just coming off the 2011 tornado outbreak that killed 54 people and ravaged the town. Tuscaloosa needed a boost, and that national title did it. Listen to you sifting through all the national championships to get your (laughs) memories of of, (laughs) of Nick Saban. Uh, Bear Bryant won six national championships with Alabama. Saban matched him. Um, Who could Alabama possibly find that would, number one, understand the culture and then understand and withstand the pressure of all the expectations to replace him? 
Well, 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 unscientifically, the students that I've spoken to, they don't think that Saban would have announced his departure without having at least somebody in mind. Now, again, sci unscientifically, one name that seems to be keep coming up is former Crimson Tide star player D'Amico Ryans. Now, he's the head coach with the Houston Texans in the NFL. A lot of people are talking about him. Is he interested? Would the Tide try to get him? Could he? Could they get him if they wanted? We, we just don't know at this point. Quickly, Pat, speaking of the NFL, since you brought it up, uh, could Nick Saban be angling for an NFL job? There are plenty of openings. Well, anything's possible, but I mean, here at Alabama, Nick Saban was literally a demigod. There's already talk about renaming the field at Brian Denny Stadium, uh, Saban Field. So the notion that he's going to go from being somebody who had that much clout to a coach who basically tries to tell millionaires what to do on the playing field in the NFL. Anything's possible. I'd be surprised, but you never know. News Director Pat Duggins of Alabama Public Radio. Pat, thanks. Thank you, A. Talk to you soon. Cryptocurrency has attracted many scams and grifters, but has also now won some approval from regulators. Yeah, the U.S. government just gave the green light to a Bitcoin ETF. ETF. That's a new kind of cryptocurrency investment fund that debuts today. NPR's David Gura joins us now. David, Bitcoin ETFs, the ETF stands for Exchange Traded Funds. What is it? Yeah, so basically this is a way for people to invest in Bitcoin, of course the world's oldest and most popular cryptocurrency, without having to own any actual Bitcoin. So stay with me here. <laughs> Exchange Traded <laughs> Funds or ETFs are very popular. This is a $7 trillion industry. A lot of people have them in their portfolios. And in general, what they do, A, is track common investments like stocks and bonds. But the ones that just got clearance, these new ETFs are going to track the price of Bitcoin. The SEC just approved about a dozen of them, and they start trading on U.S. stock markets today. Now, people in the crypto industry had been hoping for this for years. There was a lot of buildup. In fact, in the last year, Bitcoin's price shot up more than 150 percent, and there were more twists and turns this week. One day before the decision, someone caused a real frenzy by hacking into the SEC's account on the social media site X, formerly known as Twitter. That, by the way, now is something the FBI is looking into. But what's behind the excitement over this new kind of crypto investment? The true believers, along with some big money managers like BlackRock and Fidelity, they say this is going to be a way to get more people into crypto. Of course, buying Bitcoin has gotten easier in recent years, for better or worse, but it still takes a few steps to do it. You have to use a specialized exchange. It's kind of complicated. Brian Armour is an analyst with Morningstar who follows the world of ETFs, and he told me these new ETFs will make the barrier to entry much lower. So there's no signing up with a crypto exchange managing a wallet. God forbid losing your private key to whatever Bitcoin you own. Companies see a lot of opportunity here, A, but regulators have been wary of this. So about those regulators, why give the green light now? Well, they were kind of left with no choice. One crypto company took them to court because they felt the SEC didn't give them a fair shake, and it won. Now, Sarah Markovich is a professor at the Kellogg School of Business at Northwestern, and she says what's really valuable here is the legal clarity that comes from what the SEC has done. Here we're finally at the point where the regulator is willing to kind of like give us clear guidance in terms of what's legal and what's not legal. At least with these specific Bitcoin ETFs. It's evident though, A, from this 20-something page decision and from a statement from the head of the SEC that regulators did this. They made this decision with some reluctance. Why were they reluctant? Well, the chair of the SEC is Gary Gensler, and he has spent most of his tenure at that agency trying to rein in crypto. He famously said early on, it's like the Wild West. And I'll remind everyone, Bitcoin and most cryptocurrencies are very volatile. Prices can move up and down a lot in a single day. And as he said, there's been a lot of unfavorable news about crypto, to say the least. 
The SEC still has major lawsuits pending against Sam Bankman-Fried, that of course being the disgraced crypto mogul who was convicted just a few months ago of orchestrating one of the largest financial frauds in history. He's scheduled to be sentenced in March. The SEC is also suing Binance, whose founder is also looking at prison time. So Gary Gensler is still very concerned about how risky crypto is, and A, he emphasized that. While the SEC is giving the go-ahead to these specific funds, he and his colleagues are by no means endorsing Bitcoin itself or any other cryptocurrency. All right, that's NPR's David Gura. David, thanks. Thanks, Abe. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, the Marketplace Morning Report looks at the rule flight attendants play when it comes to airplane safety after a door plug flew off an Alaska Airlines plane last week. A mix of sun and clouds today, along with temperatures in the low 40s. Those fall to the low 30s tonight and overnight. Skies clear. Sunny tomorrow in the mid-40s before a storm moves in late Friday night, bringing rain and high winds into Saturday morning. It's 40 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance. Auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity. Because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com and Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. Massachusetts is one of the most expensive states for assisted living facilities. A new study from Senior Lee ranked the state as seventh most expensive in the country. It finds that it costs on average more than $5,000 a month for assisted living care. New Hampshire was ranked the most expensive state for assisted living. It costs more than $8,000 a month on average there. Cambridge-based Intellia Therapeutics is the latest biotech company to announce layoffs. The gene editing company says it plans to reduce its team by 15 percent. It's unclear how many people that affects. The company also plans to stop some exploratory research to save costs. Weston is getting its first restaurant with a liquor license since Prohibition. The Woods at Josiah Smith Tavern will open in October of this year. The owner says the Woods will focus on a farm and sea-to-table concept. It's 844. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is 90.9 WBOR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie has suspended his campaign for president. 
Christie had been a forceful critic of Donald Trump. Speaking in Wyndham, New Hampshire last night, he said he would have stayed in the race if he thought he could win. And it's clear to me tonight that there isn't a path for me to win the nomination, which is why I'm suspending my campaign tonight for president of the United States. WBUR's senior political reporter Anthony Brooks joins us now from New Hampshire. Good morning, Anthony. Yeah, good morning, Rupa. So tell us more about why Christie is dropping out. Well, Christie's campaign was always a long shot. He was the only Republican in the race who made a forceful case against Donald Trump in a party that still embraces the former president. He focused in a big way on New Hampshire, hoping he could win the primary there by appealing to the state's many moderate Republicans and independents who are sick of Trump and then carry that momentum forward. But it just wasn't happening. He spent millions of dollars. He held dozens of town hall meetings. But most polls put him way behind Trump and significantly behind Nikki Haley. So he just didn't see how he could win. And and here's a little bit more of what he said. My goal has never been to be just a voice against the hate and the division and the selfishness of what our party has become under Donald Trump. It's also been the win. But it was clear that that just wasn't going to happen, Rupa, so Christie is out. As we mentioned, Christie was the only Republican in the race who based his campaign on criticizing Donald Trump. But that wasn't always his position, right? That's right. I mean, when it comes to Trump, Christie has a complicated history. He, he ran against Trump in 2016 and then embraced him in a big way. But during this campaign, he called that a mistake. He said he thought he could help uh, Trump be a better president. But as Trump proved to be an increasingly divisive figure who now faces more than 91 criminal indictments across four different cases, Christie turned against him, and he tried to make the case again and again that Trump is not fit to be president. So now that voice is gone from the race. And by the way, the Trump campaign is crowing about it, saying it's already vanquished eight challengers before a single vote has been cast. And do you think Christie getting out of the race will help any other candidates in particular, like Nikki Haley? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to expect that this helps Haley uh, in New Hampshire because she's been attracting some of the same kinds of voters that Christie appealed to, those moderate Republicans and Republican-leaning independents. Haley's been running uh, second behind Trump in recent New Hampshire polls. One recent poll has her within just seven points. So this will probably give her a bit of a boost. But I gather Christie didn't endorse Haley last night. So why do you think that is? Well, he didn't endorse anyone. I mean, Christie's been critical of Haley on a couple of fronts, including her refusal to rule out being Trump's running mate. Uh, Beyond that, Christie blames Haley and all the other Republican candidates for not having the courage, as he sees it, to criticize the former president. And last night, Christie brought up last summer's debate in Milwaukee when the candidates were asked directly about Trump. And when we were asked, would you support someone who is a convicted felon to be president of the United States, they raised their hands, and I did not. And I cannot countenance that behavior. And Rupa, before his speech last night, uh, Christie was caught on a hot mic talking about Haley, and he made it clear that he does not believe she can beat Trump. Here's a bit of what we picked up. Yeah, I mean, look, she spent $68 million so far, just on TV, $59 million by DeSantis, and we spent twelve. I mean, who's punching above their weight and who's getting a return on their investment, you know? And she's going to get smoked. And you and I both know it. She's not up to this. 
So Rupa doesn't sound like Christie is going to be going to bat for Nikki Haley anytime soon, based on what we just heard last night. WB Wars, Anthony Brooks, thanks very much. My pleasure, Rupa. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. We're tracking ongoing challenges from this week's storms, plus Republican candidates' debate ahead of the Iowa caucuses. Keep listening. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour. China has issued a warning to voters in Taiwan two days before the island's presidential election, plus how criminal gangs are taking to the streets of Ecuador's largest city to try to intimidate the country's government. It's 8.50. My name is Robin Inman. Think about what your values are and what's important to you in the big picture and therefore what you hope you can leave as a legacy. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org legacy. It's been a decade since places like New York City bought into Vision Zero, an ambitious plan to eliminate traffic fatalities. We unpack why that has not happened on All Things Considered from NPR News on WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Thursday morning. Former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie is suspending his presidential campaign just days before the Iowa caucuses. The World Health Organization says almost 10,000 people died in the most recent wave of COVID infections last month. And multiple media outlets are reporting that Bill Belichick is out as head coach of the Patriots after 24 seasons. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Low 40s today and it'll grow overcast, mostly cloudy tonight and around freezing. Sunny in mid-40s tomorrow. Storms move in late Friday night, bringing rain and high winds that'll last through Saturday morning. It's 40 degrees in Boston. More flight cancellations are on the way. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Deloitte. Advancing the future takes more than a business angle or a technology angle. It takes both. Learn more at Deloitte.com slash U.S. slash Engineering Advantage. And by Palo Alto Networks. Palo Alto Networks delivers what's next in cybersecurity innovation to protect today's digital way of life. Learn more at paloaltonetworks.com. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore, in for David Brancaccio. The fallout continues from the Alaska Airlines flight last week where a piece of the fuselage blew off the plane. Alaska Airlines is canceling all flights on 737 MAX 9 planes through Saturday as it waits for the green light from regulators to start flying those planes again. United Airlines, which also has a fleet of 737 MAX 9s, said it canceled 167 flights yesterday and expected significant cancellations today. Now, an incident like this is obviously terrifying for passengers, but the first people to figure out how to respond to it were the flight attendants. Sarah Nelson is international president of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA, which is part of the AFL-CIO. She spoke with my Marketplace colleague, Nancy Marshall-Genzer. So first of all, are you hearing from members who are worried about their own safety after that Alaska Airlines incident when, of course, that 737 MAX 9 door plug panel blew off? Yes, flight attendants are very concerned. They're first and foremost focused on the event at hand, that everyone is safe. In this case, very, very proud of the way that that crew represented all of us. 
But yes, then there is follow-on concern and a lot of relief that the FAA acted very decisively and quickly to get those planes on the ground. I mean, flight attendants really are first responders, right? Tell me about their role in an emergency. Flight attendants are first responders. We are essential. The airlines also know that when there's a strange sound on the plane, people jerk their heads and look to flight attendants. The crews have to be very confident about the leadership that they're providing in that cabin for air travelers to have confidence in aviation. Yeah, I mean, they have such a leadership role, which starts, as you say, you know, before the plane even takes off with those safety demonstrations, which... Sarah, I have to admit, I don't always pay the most attention to that, but I will now. And what is the most important thing we should watch for? I mean, I always look for the nearest exit. If you are a passenger, some of the things that you can do in addition to giving that two and a half, three minute focus, but in addition to that, you can take a look around and see where your nearest exit is. Count the number of seat rows to get to that. Be very aware that if you need to move quickly, you've got to leave everything behind. So you've got to have everything on your body. And that leads to understanding that the most likely that there's going to be an incident is either on takeoff or landing. And having your shoes on so that you can react quickly is a really important thing to do. Having good shoes that can lace up is even better. I hadn't thought about that. Sarah, the last time you were on Marketplace, you talked about the staffing shortages at various airlines and how that's affecting flight attendants. So where do things stand on that now? I mean, has that gotten any better? The staffing for flight attendants, especially domestically, is at FAA minimums. These were minimums that were set in the 1950s specifically for safely evacuating passengers from planes. And those minimum standards will continue to apply, but they apply to the evacuation standards when those aircraft are being certified for evacuation. Our role has changed so much. We are aviation's last line of defense in aviation security. We're looking for security threats. We're looking to respond when there is a decompression or an explosive decompression like this Alaska plane. We are responding to medical emergencies. And all of that is a lot more duties with a lot more passengers and fewer of us. So our jobs are harder than they've ever been, which is also why you're seeing flight attendants across the country demand that our pay be commensurate with our duties. And we haven't seen pay raises in a very long time, partially because of COVID and, and partially because none of the airlines want to go first because they're going to have to pay significantly more to catch up for all the lost pay raises that we've had in the last few years and the years of austerity following 9-11. And Sarah, thinking about all this, maybe people could be a little nicer to their flight attendants on their next flight. I appreciate that so much, Nancy. Yep, that would be great. Sarah Nelson is president of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you. That was Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer there. Overall inflation ticked up in December, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Year over year, the consumer price index rose 3.4% for December. That is more than what was measured the month before. On the one hand, this is not the preferred direction for inflation to be headed. On the other, if you take out food and energy, which are volatile, inflation did slow down slightly. Let's see how markets responded. Let's do the numbers. They did not like it. S&P futures are down less than a tenth of a percent. Dow futures also down a tenth of a percent. NASDAQ futures up barely. And the yield on the 10-year Treasury spiked. It's at 4.060%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. The Name Your Price tool provides a range of coverage options. Progressive.com. Price and coverage match limited by state law. 
and by C3 Generative AI, verified traceable answers, secure, hallucination-free, LLM agnostic, IP liability-free. Learn more at C3.ai. And by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. OpenAI, the company behind ChatGPT, is reportedly in talks to license content from some of the biggest names in media, CNN, Fox, Time. This was first reported by Bloomberg. OpenAI has also been in discussions with dozens of publishers. Marketplace's Nova Sappho has more on what's brewing. The reported effort to reach content licensing deals with CNN, Fox, and Time would be in line with similar initiatives OpenAI has recently pursued. For example, it has already struck a deal with the Associated Press to license its archive going back to 1985. It also has a deal with the parent company of Politico and Business Insider. While financial terms of those deals were not disclosed, The Information, a tech news site, has reported that OpenAI is now offering publishers somewhere between $1 and $5 million a year to license their content. It will use that content to train its AI tools and to display information generated by news organizations. OpenAI has also acknowledged being in talks with The New York Times, that is until late December, when The Times became the first major U.S. media organization to sue the AI firm and its partner Microsoft for copyright infringement. The Times suggested the companies were liable for billions of dollars in damages. OpenAI denied wrongdoing. I'm Nova Safo for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. It'll grow overcast today and we'll have temperatures in the low 40s. Partly cloudy and around freezing tonight, sunny and mid-40s tomorrow. It's 40 degrees in Boston and the BBC NewsHour is coming up next. I'm executive editor for News, Dan Mozzie, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.